You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is To Stir With Love, a criminal justice reform podcast. I am here today with someone very special, Rachmiel uh, um, Drizen, who is a uh, recently retired. Uh, let me get it right, Rachmiel. The, the position that you had, say it correctly. I was an assistant public defender for the office of the Cook County Public Defender, and I worked in the Legal Resources Department division doing post-convictions and some appeals. Okay, and that's really the key here. And we've had public defenders here before, but you are our first post-conviction public defender. You get the cases that are the toughest, the cases of people that have already been sentenced and have been found guilty. You're the one that can perhaps get a new trial. You could perhaps even uh, spring the guy if it turns out that uh, there was there was a lot of uh, wrong, wrongful stuff done beforehand. And you were doing this for many, many years in Cook County, recently retired. And because of that, <laughs> their loss, of course, is our gain. Because now that you're free from those shackles of not being able to speak about your work, you can now come and join us on To Stir with Love. We also have with us um, uh, uh, David, who, uh, who we've had here in the past. And, and the reason why I thought of bringing David here is because David served, as he has said often, as a jailhouse lawyer. So in a way, David and you, although you don't know each other, but David was doing the type of work for your clients that got you involved. Because David would be working with, uh, with these men who had been convicted, looking over their cases and seeing if there might be some cause to petition for a new trial. That would, maybe there would be an appeal that would have to be, uh, have to be uh, sent in by a certain time, with a certain date, with certain rules. And as David, as you've said, many of the, the people that you've helped were not <laughs> adept in, in legal things, but you as a, as a former lawyer were, and you were able to help them. So really, so David, you were working it on the prisoner's end. And, 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 and Rachmiel, you were the one who actually, once the case came to you, were the ones that were actually, uh, uh, would actually move forward on it. And I know that you've got a couple of very interesting cases to tell us about, which not only highlight the drama and the terror of the life that surrounded you, but I think also underscores some of the problems in the criminal justice system. And, and, and obviously, when you were, you're going to tell us about the, the shatran between us, which is uh, Rabbi Yaman Shaiman, who is uh, this, the founder and CEO of Hinda Helps, which, uh, of course, is an organization that is involved with incarcerated individuals and their families, offering them help uh, throughout the process, including the reentry process. Uh, dealing with dealing with them with such compassion, and it's through Rabbi Shimon's uh, uh, networking that we were able to corral uh, Rachmiel here uh, for us tonight. Also, my usual uh, uh, compatriot, my usual partner in the podcast crime here, uh, Rabbi Yitzchok, <laughs> Rabbi Yitzchok who is the chief uh, chaplain of chaplain in 
Waymart Prison, Pennsylvania. He works for the state, so he's the closest thing we have to a CO. So we have we have representatives of uh, almost everybody here. That under the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution, we have a right to counsel, a right to a lawyer. And in Gideon versus Wainwright, a case in the 1960s, that right was extended to provide for paid legal counsel for those people who were too poor to hire a private lawyer. Both, I've worked in the system for 30 years because the constitution says that I could be hired to work for the poor people. So we know that in the system, you are charged with the crime and you go to trial. That's the trial lawyer. If you lose that, you have a right to appeal that case. If you lose that, you have a right to then file by yourself a post-conviction petition. And this post-conviction petition will raise issues of constitutional rights about issues that perhaps should have been raised by prior lawyers, either trial or appellate level, or talks about what that trial lawyer or appellate lawyer should have done, investigating witnesses, raising legal claims, and or presenting um, cases of actual innocence, newly discovered in this evidence that was not present at the time that would have made a difference at trial. And that's basically what I did on those things, either doing constitutional rights about failure to investigate, failure to call alibi witnesses, failure to raise certain defenses, um, failure to tell my clients what the sentencing range was, and they plead guilty to something that they don't know, and or um, cases of actual innocence. I must say that the system in general works well, but I should have won many more new trials than I did. I only won new trials in few cases. So what do I do? I basically defend the Constitution. I defend the rights of my clients, Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment rights about searches and seizures, about self-incrimination, about legal counsel, and how they apply to the states under the 14th Amendment. So Basically, almost every significant state criminal law decision, particularly death cases, was a post-conviction. The information came out after the, the person lost the appeal. Now, after 30 years, I must say I am not an abolitionist. What does that mean? There are lawyers and public who are claiming that the whole penal system must be abolished just because of problems that are in, inherent at every level. I agree with that but I'm not an abolitionist. I'm not a defund the police person. I think the police have a very important, important role to serve and protect. But unfortunately, our country, the United States of America, which I love and cherish, is the country that incarcerates the most people per capita in the world. And it does so in a way that is often inhumane, unnecessary, fair, and disproportionately affects poor, black, Latinx, Native American, female, immigrant, and mentally ill people amongst other groups. I do believe, unfortunately, that most police, instead of in the business of serve and protect, are in the business of getting arrests and way, way too much use physical force and psychological coercion to get confessions. Most prosecutors are in the business, instead of doing justice, of getting convictions and they will ignore the physical force and psychological coercion 
used by police to get confessions. And most unfortunately, many judges are ex-prosecutors who seem to forget that they no longer work for that office. I hope to get to some solutions about that at the end of this. Wow. So, Let's talk about one of the cases where you where police brutality was one of the issues that you brought up, uh, police coercion or brutality. That yeah. that and let's talk about X. X. Thank you. X. Yeah, thank okay. you. Thank you. So, right. um, so X is a pseudonym, but it, it seems like X was um, brought in uh, by the police, and um, they not only. Um, uh, uh, some someone fingered X for some reason that he mm-hmm. was that he was connected uh, to a um, to a uh, to a shooting, right? That he yes, was connected. Correct. He was connecting. He was connected to a shooting of a 29 year old person. Um, X was fingered by by someone. Um, they put him in an interrogation room. Uh, they cuffed him. Um, they questioned him. Uh, they punched him, they slapped him, um, uh, insulted him, um, and then they told him that if he cooperated and they and he confessed to what they wanted him to confess to, then he'd be all right. But if he didn't confess, somehow X was told he's finished because someone already fingered him and he was going to get 50 years in prison. And according to what you've told, what you sent us, X was given the details and uh, he had to, I guess, write them up or at least sign a confession with those details. Uh, and once they had that confession, um, uh, that was one thing. But there was also, uh, maybe you can take up the story from there. There okay. was something so, else. So I was fortunate to work with a group called the um, First Defense Legal Aid. They did something amazing. They would send a lawyer to go down to, um, to, uh, to police stations. It was a network that started in the mid nineties. They basically pass out cards of it and they would call on hotline. Actually my roommate, we get a phone call like at one in the morning and then run to a police station. Basically to tell the client, don't say anything. So what happened was in uh, my client had been arrested, X was arrested, and he was interviewed by a woman who worked with this agency. And she told, he told her that he would be, he was abused, tortured, and he falsely confessed. He told him lots of information that, that a co-defendant, somebody was next door to him, you heard him from the wall, and he talked about that. The problem was, is that when he went to trial, the lawyer who represented X never brought in this early attorney from the first defense legal aid to testify to how my client was beaten up. Now, why do cops beat up? Um, I'm not going to say it's like the Inquisition or like what we see in movies that they, they try to get a false confession out. The cops had heard information that try to tie my client into it but they use physical pressure and psychological coercion, beating, slapping, so much so that he had wounds on his face. And those wounds were actually written down in a report uh, and pictures were taken uh, that that actually showed he was injured as well as psychological coercion. You know, police, unfortunately, are allowed to lie 
in order to get confessions, saying, sign this and you can get out of here. They're allowed to say that. The Supreme Court has said that. So the big problem was the lawyer who represented X never put on during the trial in a motion to suppress his confession. Again, there was no eyewitness to testify, but you have somebody who confesses, that is as good as gold to get a confession. And unfortunately, way too many confessions are either false or are forced to be, or forced. We're not allowed to torture somebody in this country. We have an eighth and I, 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 In this trial, though, it was interesting that the guy who fingered him, we'll call him M, yeah, yeah. X. So M who fingered X on the witness stand actually recanted. Yes. And, and said that 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 the police made him um, uh, do that. The police made him uh, finger X. Yeah. So so it sounds like, you know, this this sounds like uh, this sounds like a nightmare trial. It's I mean, um, it's you know, um, Rabbi, I'm, I'm sorry to say I've seen way, way too much of this. It, to give the Dalekhavzichut, I believe that the police officers were not trying to do some side of um like Torquemada Inquisition kind of thing to get someone to say that they were a witch or that they were he. I believe that they believed in their mind that they had the guy, but again, they used physical physical torture and psychological coercion. That's the problem. That's the problem. And, and there was, you, you, you imply, I mean, you told us, I mean, I read the case from what you sent me and there was a guy in another room yeah. who was also, in, although he wasn't able, you know, we'll call him W, yeah, yeah. But, but W was in this other room and it could hear what was going on. And, yeah. and, 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 and X's lawyers never even thought of calling W to the stand. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, that, that's incredible, right? So, So this information about not calling the original lawyer who visited him from the first defense legal clinic didn't come to the attention to any judge. What happened was, is that my boss of blessed memory, Harold Winston, uh, a really great yid, who was my boss for 17 years, he passed in February. The world world was darker for his loss. He was a a, a great lawyer and really a, a minister for justice. So he started working on the case and he got. But, the, but that was that was 15 years yes. afterwards. Yes. So X was sitting in prison for 15 years. An innocent person. And so what happened was, is that all of this information was presented to the judge. And thankfully, and this is a good thing. There is a state's attorney's office of conviction review, integrity. And they realized that his conviction should be vacated. They did not recommend, unfortunately, that he should be freed. They did not recommend that he, they should, his conviction should be vacated and he should have a new trial. And the state was dead set on going for that trial. But, but, what, but the good thing was, is at least they agreed it should be vacated. I'm pretty sure that any judge, given the list of affidavits and the problems, would have said that the conviction should be vacated, which means they go for a new trial. So now we are, we're back in the start, almost 20 years later, and the state's attorney are fighting us to try to have a retrial and to keep the confession in. Because once the confession drops out, there's nothing to hold my client. 
So what do we do? We, my, what I did, what I added to this case is I investigated all of the detectives who were involved. Now, the detectives who were involved, everyone had a laundry list as long as my arm of cases in which they had used physical force and psychological coercion. I had talked cases that were brought so up. How, how did you discover that? You did research into all these policemen, all these detectives? I, I, I solicited, I, I subpoenaed the records from the police accountability board, which has records of citizen complaints. And some of these people had had serious complaints that were adjudicated. They may have been suspended for a short period of time, but a lot of their cases called a pattern in practice that these police officers had a pattern of practice of using physical abuse and torture and psychological coercion to try to get people to confess. And when they were presented with the encyclopedic knowledge, as well as our ability to then present that to the press, the day that they were going to go for, for the hearing, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, and they had really fought, fought, fought. They said the two magic words that every public defender wants to hear, noli prosecute, noli prosecute, meaning that we are not going to prosecute. And then the client walks out magically. Magically out after to, 20 years. Yes. The man lost 20 years of his life. David, I want to call you in on this. I mean, you you heard the story. You read the story. Um, does this sound does this sound uh, like uh, as par for the course? Uh, Rachmiel is making us uh, is painting a pretty uh, terrible picture. Does this jive with the cases that you were involved in, David? No, no, not at all. Uh, because the state system, at least from my experience, and I and I only was handling and involved with federal cases while imprisoned, uh, but incarcerated. But uh, I am very familiar with these type of situations. Uh, with uh, discussions I've had with those in the state system, but also attorneys like Rachmiel who've handled these kind of cases. And what it really underscored for me when I read not only this case, but the cases in general that Rachmiel, you know, all of the cases that Rachmiel sent, it really underscored for me the challenges in prevailing in these cases. Um, not only did Rachmiel have, you know, a, a evidence that was compelling of course, he had to develop it, and that takes tremendous skill. But you have to have evidence that is very strong to have even a chance on post-conviction relief motions and proceedings, which I think Rachmiel would echo, to even have a chance. And what I found more than times than not, in my experience in the federal system, were guys had issues that simply weren't very compelling. And this is why, again, speaking to the numbers in the federal system, you see on average, uh, at most, uh, you know, 1% or even less than 1% of success rates and success rates, uh, you know, at, at least in my view, have to be defined as either a reduction in sentence or a reversal of the conviction. Very, very uncommon. And I, Rachmiel would have a better sense of the numbers in the state system, but in the federal system, very low. But what I, what I did notice in the cases they sent this one in particular very, uh, and in, and when he when he comments moments ago on how prevalent it is with the coercion coercion and physical um, uh, you know acts that these these officers take and investigators take, it really underscores uh, how prevalent that is. And so, what it raises the question of is how many innocent people are in the state prisons? 
Definitely. You know, you mentioned uh, uh, this. We've talked about this case. Sentence he was involved in was a case where it wasn't a, a person who was innocent. The person was uh, guilty, but uh, there was a situation where uh, the the kingpin, like the the main guys, because of pleas that they had set up, ended up getting a a lesser. Uh, sentence than your client, Rachmiel, right? Yes. Um, so that that was a case of not innocence, but a case where due process was was not followed because you have a situation where a fellow who doesn't seem to be the the, the worst the worst apple there ends up getting the most years in prison. Yeah, and that was actually a case of a writ of Rahmanis. And if I can say that that was probably the most meaningful moment in my, in my career. What happened was, is my client, he was found guilty of aggravated kidnapping for ransom and sentenced by a very strict judge to 60 years in, in jail, which was going to mean 30 years. He had already spent 20 years in jail. The evidence of his doing it was very flimsy. It rested basically on the, um, there was a gang leader and the gang leader's wife. The gang leader's wife became state evidence. The gang leader's wife sent my client a letter and said, I'm sorry, I lied on you. Written to him as an apology. That's the letter that got us into the evidentiary hearing. Because he basically told a story much more inflated about my client that what what happened was is during the pendency of this they the main gang leader um who had kidnapped somebody and tortured them all right there was a gruesome there was a gruesome act done to a fellow right a person was kidnapped put into a closet yeah Uh, a pit bull was was a pit bull was unleashed into that closet with him so let me say let me say a bit about that can you imagine what a pit bull would do to a hand if it bit it, right? So there's a picture of the, the, vi- the victim died, by the way, a year later in, in case something unrelated to what happened. The victim actually kind of like jumped out a two-story window, like ran down the L tracks. It was, a, it was right out of a movie, like it's an escape. They were chasing him down the L tracks. Um, but if you look at the picture of the victim's wound, it would be like, I took your hand and took a Sharpie and went bang, bang. All right. That's what it looked like when he was treated. It, that's, not, that's not what we expect when a pit bull would bite you. It would be a lot more than that. So that's, that's all the evidence. But, my, but, the, but the gang leader's wife who pled guilty and spent two years on probation, she testified about this big plot that involved several people. What happened was. So, so judge, let, let, let's call this guy B. So yeah, B, yeah. so B was the fellow who who is, ends up being your client. Yes, who ends up being one of the torturers and gets. Uh, well, let, let's say this: B shows up at the apartment. He's he, he's in charge of training dogs with his dog. He wants he wants to get some pancake syrup. That's what he says. And when he's there, the gang leader says, "Go put your dog on on the man," like whatever that means. People hear the, the dog bark. All right. We never hear from the victim because the victim died a year later 
injury is not related to that. And then, the, and then he leaves. But there was no real evidence about my client doing anything with kidnapping for ransom or part of it. What happened was the victim's brother stole some money out of the car of the gang leader, $300. So they kidnapped the, the, they kidnapped, uh, the, bro the brother who was my victim and they tortured him to try to find out where the money was. So, but what happened was during the pendency, going for the third trial, the main gang leader who'd been sentenced to natural life in prison, he was a very, very, very dangerous dude. He pled guilty for 45 years time served and the judge who was, a, who had been a career state's attorney and a very tough judge, he was really bothered by this. So in the appeal that you wrote, that you read, his decision to have a new sentencing hearing was reversed, meaning you're not going to have it. I then filed another um, petition on my client's behalf, and I went before the judge and to, the, to the praise the state, to praise the state. When it came to the sentencing hearing, the state just said that they thought the judge should sentence it to a, a just sentence. They stepped, they stepped back. To their credit, they stepped back. And the judge, with a tear in his eye, because he could see, because I was talking, he could see I was getting choked up because I, I knew he was going to do it. He said, time served, which meant that instead of my client being in jail to age 68, he was going to walk out at age 58 and be able to be with grandkids and family members he hadn't seen in 20 years. My client, by the way, is six foot nine, four hundred pounds. Wow! So this and, 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 and even though I mock Peter about Shomer Nagia, I let his daughters hug me with their tears, hot tears going down on my neck, and the judge saw that, and the judge had to wipe his eye. So, so in other words, you were able to get B off, although he had something to do with it, but you were able to indicate that that because these other people involved, the kingpin, the guy who had ordered it, was 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 given a a a, a lighter sentence. Disparate sentence. Disparate sentence, yeah. A, a disparate sentence. Yeah, yeah. So the disparate sentence was is considered not due process. So they mm -hmm. needed to then look at the amount of years that B had served and said, well, if this guy gets off for 45 years and he's, yeah. and, and he was the kingpin and you were just some flunky that might've yeah. sicked your dog on him and might've not, we're going to let you go now for time served. It so was, this, yeah. now, now, even though, even though it was after the fact, because yeah. this, this occurred in 1995, yeah. right? So it wasn't, it wasn't like a mistake in the trial, was it? No, no. So yeah, this was it. so this is very different than the lawyers in the beginning missed something. Yes, although there were problems with there were problems that the lawyer who represented him was a, was an elderly public defender who probably was way past her prime. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say that she probably was. But, but 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 the inventiveness of your argument was different. It was much, yes. in the first case you're talking about the wrong man that this yes. is this is a lie, and yes. in this case he is he was obviously part of the group. Right. We didn't deny that. But no. once the state was cutting deals with the kingpin and everybody else and people were getting off with less time, you argued how it's unfair that B should be, have to sit in prison for another 15 or 20 years. Yes. And the judge and the judge, the judge knew he was doing right. The state. This, so there wasn't like a family in the courtroom who was 
very upset about this, that someone was getting free. And to spend 20 years of your life, by the way, my client before this had had no priors. No priors. David, did you ever file an appeal with that type of argument that you just heard Rachmil use? Yes, I never succeeded. (laughs) I was going to say that due process arguments, again, in the federal system, I found incredibly difficult. So in other words, you were also able to show let's say your clients in the jailhouse and you would look through the case and see, Hey, how come this other guy with his plea gets off with less? And, and my friend over here is sitting here with law and you would, and you would go through, go file that paperwork and do all that stuff. It, it was a very common, commonly presented argument that I made. And I just, I never won one. I mean, it's, it's a very tough one. I, I can only speak to my experience in the federal system, I didn't have a lot to work with many times, but, you know, remember too, by the way, very limited when we're in prison as jailhouse lawyers in our ability to investigate and really vigorously uh, expose things from where we're at. So, but with the arguments that I was presented and the facts and evidence that I was presented and, and then kind of, you know, researching these cases, because there's many of these cases brought in the federal system, very, very rarely won, very rarely. So, so maybe we might say, I mean, that part of the reason why B was able to to get years of his life back was not just the cogency of the argument, but also the doggedness, the passion, and the luck of the draw in terms of the judge that yep. the argument came to. Right? The, ju- the judge, the judge felt when he was going to rule against us because he didn't believe. I had I had the gang leader on the stand, and he said my client had nothing to do with it. I had the other defendant, the other. The, on the stand, he, nothing to do with it, right? He didn't believe that, but he was very bothered by the fact that 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 he was he was just bothered him in, in his in his kishkis. He was bothered by that, and so much so that it took about three years before he lost the appeal and came back. It wasn't from till 2015, and uh, that and, and the judge was so was so he recognized that he was doing pure judge justice at that time, and that got him emotionally involved. And this man is a straight shooter, tough judge. And ever since then, whenever I walked in the courtroom, he was he was like, he gave me like, you know, street cred because he recognized that I was part of this wonderful moment of true justice that maybe he should have been sentenced for 20 years, whatever, mm-hmm. but he shouldn't have been in there as long. By the way, when they say 60 years, that means 30 years with good time. You don't necessarily get good time. Um, I understand. But, but being six foot nine, 400, no one fought him in prison. So <laughs> That's right. I can, I can imagine. Now, I want to bring in Rabbi Scheinman here for a minute because, Rabbi, um, you know, you have probably met, and, 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 and Rachmiel, these are the two successes. As, as David points out, you've probably had places where you weren't able to be successful. I want to ask Rabbi Scheinman, have you ever had to minister when you've gone into the prisons of people who have lost their appeals, who weren't able to get out, and and, and how do you how do you talk to to a, an incarcerated person, especially let's say in cases similar to Rachmiel's case, where they didn't do it, or everybody else got off with less, and the judge doesn't want to hear it, uh, they don't want to have a new trial, they rule against you. Has that ever happened, Rabbi? That you've had to comfort them and talk to them? It happens. Uh... It happens too often, and um, I have a number of men. I have one man who did get an appeal, but lost the appeal, ended up doing 17 and a half years of a crime he didn't commit. 
Um, have another man who just got out now, who's never, who always proclaimed his innocence. And I was going to be in touch with Rafmiel later uh, about talking about uh, e even after he gets out, this man would still like to uh, have his name cleared and be exonerated. And uh, uh, it, it just, but people don't give up hope. It's very amazing that is as 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 disappointing as those court decisions are. They still are maintaining their faith and their hope, and they keep fighting. And again, uh, the man who uh, served the whole seventeen and a half years, he turned into he he was a a, a very um, uh, religious Sephardic Jew who just chalked it up to Hashem. And he told me, look, Rabbi Shimon, I did lots of things that upset Hashem. I, I know why I'm here for 17. It's not for what they said, but I but he was at peace being there because he he understood there's uh, he did other things. And, 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 and uh, you know, there he, he resiliency, even to want to start this appeals process. You know, David, to have somebody who cares enough uh, to speak to the jailhouse lawyers to to fight. I mean, I, I assume for many people who are there they feel their world has crumbled around them to the point that they sort of give up and they say, what's the use? All the cards are stacked against me. Um, and, and, and I'm sure there's many people who just feel that it's not going to make a difference and they'd rather just not even try. I, I, I'm just assuming that because otherwise your office would be flooded with, 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 uh, with requests. Let's talk about the third case, which I think is, we all read about it. And I think that's really the one that, to me, again, I'm no lawyer, but to me, that's the one that, in a way, had the most interesting legal spin on it. The first one is, <laughs> this guy is innocent because you guys forced a confession. The second one was, it was disproportionate. The third one is, this was a fellow, um, let's call him D. Yes. So D was a, was a gunman for uh for a for a gang in chicago 16 he, or 17 let's say he's a 16 or 17 year old youth okay. a 16 or 17 gun youth yes. and, and 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 when and when uh some sort of gang activity is going on and someone from a rival gang from uh i i, don't, I guess i can't even say their names yeah, yeah. It, you can imagine what they're called okay so let's call them the jets and the sharks yes for, okay so somebody from the he's on the jets and somebody from the sharks comes over right and somehow <laughs> somehow he shoots this guy who's in the car from the sharks because it looks like the guy in his mustang is, yes. is there to make trouble yes so so d isn't <laughs> he's a he's a he's, he's a gunslinger right yes. not only does he shoot this guy and right and, and that's bad enough but he decides to go after him and I don't know if he goes after him in a car or he runs after mm -hmm. him, right? Yes. But, right? He runs after him and he's running, he's running after this guy and he takes another shot at him. Now, this shot, unfortunately, doesn't do the job he wants it to do, but instead it, it shoots a, a, a young girl who's near an ice cream truck where this guy from the Jets was driving. And this little girl dies. I assume she died almost immediately yeah, after yeah, she yeah. was shot. Okay, so and now it was a very public, very pu I don't remember. It was, a, it was. I remember this happening. It happened in the nineties, but it was very tragic, tragic thing. And so what happens that 
my client is found guilty of the murder of the girl and the attempted murder of, of, of the other rival gang. And the judge sentences him to a hundred years for the murder of the little girl. The little girl who he didn't mean to kill, he gets a hundred years for. Yes. And th- to, to be served consecutively with 30 years for the, the, um, the, the guy gang. from the Jets gang who yes. didn't die. Yes. <laughs> who didn't so die, but it's attempted murder. That's 130 years, but because this was done in a time in which there was something called good time allowed, they don't do this anymore like this for murder, that it would be served at 50%, which basically meant this 17-year-old boy would be in jail till he's 82. Now, what happened was, wonderfully, people had been putting forth arguments against juvenile natural life imprisonment, the problems about it. We all have had 16-year-old children, some of us have. We know how they can act rashly. But if you put them in a, if you put them in a gang situation with all those problems, broken homes, like lack of, lack of supervision, and you give them guns and, and there's danger, they will react because the brain chemistry, you know, everyone at 16 knows they've done foolish things. My rabbi talks about how they somebody like Thursday night at, 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 the, at the Chabad uh, called like try to get some cholent and fell into a pot of hot cholent, okay? Trying to break in over the, over, over the transom. Pete, that's the kind of thing a 16-year-old does, similarly. So there was a rule that said that if it was a youngster sentenced to natural life prison, that they had to have a special hearing to determine what they were. Because it could be, and I'll give this to you, you could have somebody, quote, like a silence of the lambs person who is incorrigible and is, is dangerous. I, 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 there could be that person. There could be that person. But you have to have details. Like So that was the law. But the state refused to say that putting somebody in jail till they're 82 did not constitute a de facto life sentence. They fought me on that. And the judge, who was a career state's attorney, who never did anything before, before her, and I have other cases with her, she said, nope. He stays in jail. There's no such thing as a de facto, meaning that even though he, he could get out at age 82, that's being in jail from 75 to 82, that that's not a, and the Illinois appellate court said, nope, that is improper to give a juvenile because he's still a kid. Anyone under 17 is still considered a child. So, Jewish law, six, six, 17, so, 613 appellate court said, nope. You must have a resentencing hearing and look at all the factors before you ever think about doing that. And the client was resentenced, as I'm told, to 30, 35 years in jail, which meant 17 and a half, which means he's, he's getting out at, he, he, he's, 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 he's get out at age 34. And that's somebody who grew up in a broken home. Now, you might say that's not enough. Well, he's not going to be a member of a gang. Because what happened was the appellate, the judge, the court said that anything over 40 years was considered to be a de facto life sentence. And so he was sentenced to he was sentenced to 30 to 34, 35 years, which meant 17, 18 years. And he's and, and he is he's since served that time. And from what I'm told, he's he's out and 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 trying to get his life together. So I want to get David's in on this for a minute, and then I just want to make a, a, a comment on this. David, did you ever deal with, uh, as a jailhouse lawyer, with uh, prisoners who had been 
juveniles when they were arrested? No, I actually didn't. I didn't. But uh, I, I, I do want to comment, though, again, on what I, Rock, this case and the other cases Rock Mill sent us today, Rabbi, underscores, and that is the importance of the judge in the case. They have a judge who can be open-minded. What, uh, we talk a lot about the problems with prosecutors, the problems with FBI investigators and state investigators. But in the end, from my point of view, particularly when we're speaking about post-conviction relief issues, you have to have a judge who at least has somewhat of an open mind. And what you saw here in some of Rachmiel's cases is different judges that ultimately he was fortunate enough to get one or more with open minds that led with his passion and his determination led him to a positive result. But without that judge having that open mind, he would hit that end. Yeah, but, but what was interesting is that, as Rachmiel points out, and I just elaborate for those who didn't catch it, that there's a trick that the, that the prosecution did. Instead of saying we're sentencing you for your natural life, they, 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 they do an ex, a ballooned amount of years that technically with time off will still doesn't it's not a life sentence even though we know in terms of how many people live to 80 in prison considering the health issues that happen there right we realize that that's a fiction but but they're able to it's almost like yeah i didn't say it's a life sentence i said it's 130 years which you can now uh, do 60 percent of that and you'll still be alive so basically we're not sentencing you for life and that was the way they were able uh, to 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 avoid right rachmiel the idea yes. that they were sentencing as a juvenile for life now one of the things that you used in your argument which you didn't mention just now was the eighth amendment which which uh, mitigates against cruel and unusual punishment what's interesting is is that that itself is fascinating to me that you uh, for a minor to be put into prison because a minor as you say is is just a wild teenager that doesn't know what he's doing with his life to to treat him like an adult would be cruel and unusual, right? That's yeah. that's really the argument. The cruel and unusual isn't about the punishment itself. It's also about who the who the person you're punishing. It's not cruel and unusual if you'd be 25, but exactly. it'd be cruel and unusual for someone who's 16 who you don't think is really aware of, uh, enough, or is like you say, is not a Hannibal Lecter type yeah. of person. One of the arguments you mentioned there. In, in, in what you said in prison is 64 that sentencing him to 65 years was put him to 82 was going to put him for his it was de facto natural life sentence uh, I and see. That, that in itself should be reconsidered in light of the supreme court case which said that minors are different and they need to be treated differently and discussed differently when it comes to murders and i've had a lot of cases involving that um as which as well as the de facto life as a matter of fact Psychologists have been shown that your brain isn't fully mature to about 25. And so now we're trying to use, trying to move the bar up to 18, 19, 20 year olds to get them resentenced because maybe they get, have a whole psychological workup on them and see where they were back then to sort of, to sort of figure out, you know, was that, what was going in their mind, which wasn't presented in a trial. So, so I guess I understand that this argument it wasn't that, my argument, right? So, but there was an argument made by another lawyer that maybe this this little girl Juana, who was who was shot, they didn't prove a trial that she indeed was under twelve. 
And right. in order to aggravate his sentence, you need to show her birth certificate and just not rely on what the state's attorney is saying. Uh, I mean, we're, we're, that's that's exactly, you may think it's a technicality, but it's everything when it comes to aggravating factors. Because mm-hmm. if, 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 if I'm, if I'm a, a, a prematurely graced 59-year-old and I'm not considered <laughs> a senior citizen of 65, then I can't be, I, I should not be aggravated to, to similarly the other Look, yes. you're using, you're throwing everything you can at it, which is really not cool. I. The, the other attorney did. Yeah. Okay, but you you were pretty inventive yes. too on that. Yeah. I'm sure. saying you you rolled up your sleeves on this one. I'm yes. saying right, yes. and, and and to basically you know do whatever you can and, and due process, to right? due process. So, so these three successes. Let's end with this. I mean, okay. you, I think we've underscored a lot what needs to be changed, and it's it's a massive job. But these three successes. What percentage are they of your total caseload? Are, 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 these are three of your successes. Does that mean 97% of what you did was, was resulted in failure or what? I would probably say more like 98. 98% of your, of, of your work in post-conviction work, yep. you, you basically were, weren't able to, to nudge the system at all. And I think that probably at least... 90% of my cases, of 10% of my cases that I had, 10%, I should have gotten something different than just a denial. But, 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 but a very small percentage. The system works generally. If I won a lot, the system would be in, in, in horrible shape. The system has a lot of problems. But at my level, they've had a trial and an appeal, maybe a previous post-conviction or two. If at my level I'm, get, I'm making all this difference, um, they say about four to five percent of all cases have actual innocence. I've not seen that high, although I do have cases of actual innocence that every lawyer I know have worked on it. These guys are, and that the state unfortunately has been fighting hard. So it's uh, at my level. A trial's different story, I but at, a trial you can an appeal is different. But at my level. It's very hard to change what's happening. It should be hard to change. But I would dare say that I should have been 10% of my cases. I should have had some sort of relief. And I didn't. only got that in about 1% or 2%. One, one or 2%. And, and let's, just, let's just wrap this up by saying that with your retirement, uh, and David, I think you'll agree, um, there needs to be more people like you in this system, frustrated as they are with it, but willing to to doggedly pursue, even though the chances of of of, of, of success are small. Otherwise, there's no light at the end of it. There's no light at all in the tunnel. And and are and and what is going to uh, what's going to be an inspiration to get people to take your type of job. It isn't a high paying, uh, you know, fancy lawyer that someone can pay for. All of your clients were from the underclass, oh, mostly, oh. mostly people of color, people who couldn't afford anything. And, and therefore have, like you say, Rachmiel, uh, you have to be a malach, as you point out, that your name is the name of a malach. And it's only if we have malachim there that the chances of any change happening uh, are, are possible. So, uh, but hopefully we'll, we'll have you back again. David, thanks again for, for hearing your insight here. Um, Thank you very much. Okay, we'll catch you, Mir uh, next time. Take care, everybody. Be well. Bye-bye. Thank you. 
Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 